Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Today, a long interview with the Greek economist Yanis Varoufakis. Yanis was on this show 16 times between 2008 and 2014, first discussing austerity-induced rioting in that country, and then masterfully analyzing the trajectory of the euro crisis, which, alas, has not gone away. This is his first appearance on Behind the News since November 2014. Yanis Varoufakis was born in Athens in 1961. He went to Britain for his undergraduate and graduate education, getting degrees in both math and economics. From 1982 to 87, he taught economics in England, then moved to Australia, where he taught for 13 years. He returned to Greece in 2000. When Greece's economy fell apart starting around 2009, he found it increasingly difficult to do his academic work and went abroad again, doing stints with the video game maker Valve, studying their fictional monetary system, which he discussed on this show, and also at the University of Texas. He returned to Greece and was elected to Parliament in January 2015 and was appointed Finance Minister. As Finance Minister, he was the lead negotiator with Greece's creditors, the European Union, Germany, and its hardline allies like the Netherlands, the European Central Bank, and the IMF. They spurned all his proposals. In July 2015, after Greek voters approved the creditors' bailout proposal with many nasty strings attached, Varoufakis resigned. To him, Greece had had more than enough austerity and the orthodox medicine wasn't working and was destined never to work. Over the last year, he's devoted most of his energy campaigning for a democratic reinvention of the EU under the banner of the Democracy in Europe Movement 2025, known as DM25. Here's the first part of my interview with Yanis Varoufakis. So, Giannis, last time we talked was, I believe, November 2014. The European growth rates were, I don't know, one, one and a half percent. The Greek economy was would happy if it had a zero percent quarter. Uh, we seem to be pretty much in the same place we were uh, over two years ago, aren't we? Well, how can we possibly expect something different when we're doing exactly the same thing in Europe? They did promise us things would uh, work out, but they're not working out. Yes, but those promises were underpinned by a determination and a commitment to continue doing exactly the same thing. And whatever it is that they have done, it was always uh, behind the bend, always in response to the continuation of the crisis for which they were responsible. Never an attempt to stem it, to get ahead of the curve, and uh, to, to do something about the causes rather than the symptoms. Are there any signs of recovery about any of the conventional measures, you know, GDP growth, unemployment rates, uh, or is it still exactly the same thing for what we've seen for the last several years? There is, there is a, a cyclical recovery of sorts. It's a very tepid one, uh, a very weak one. The business cycle uh, at this very moment uh, should be registering significant recovery, uh, but it is the architectural design faults and the procrastination and the commitment to failed policies, which is holding it back. If you look at countries like Spain, for instance, there is um, modest growth. There is even a little bit of inflation. Even in Germany, there is, um, uh, we, we've shifted away from the deflationary mode of last year. But nevertheless, it is all very tentative. It is based uh, in Spain, for instance, on credit expansion in the country that suffered the credit bubble and therefore is still laboring under the legacy of that uh, bubble's uh, bursting. Investment in, uh, important, in, in, in things that society needs uh, remains uh, ridiculously low. So uh, I'm afraid we're wasting the upturn of the business cycle due to the political failures of the Eurozone. Now, is there any uh, bifurcation between uh, the core of the EU and the periphery, or are they all still pretty much both uh, stuck in the mud? They're both stuck in the mud in different ways. The manifestation of the crisis in, in Italy is evident for all to see. We have uh, a completely broken down banking system, a public debt which is unsustainable, uh, even though the, the European Central Bank is buying tens of billions of it all the time. Uh, in um, places like Germany, you have uh, pension funds that have been crushed by the deflationary forces unleashed uh, from, by the same process. Uh, and uh, the, the fact of the matter, Doug, is that um, while the monetary authorities, particularly the European Central Bank, have managed to inject sufficient cortisone in the European patient to make the patient look stable under the surface, under the skin, Within the foundations of the real economy, Europe is becoming increasingly imbalanced and uh, the centrifugal forces are doing uh, their catastrophic deed 
And what about the European version of uh, uh, quantitative easing? Has it had any positive effect at all? This is the cortisone I was talking about. Uh, There there would have been no eurozones to speak of now if it was not for quantitative easing. But uh, it is quite interesting to compare and contrast uh, QE in Europe to that in the United States or in Japan or even in Britain. In uh, Europe, quantitative easing, uh, let's face it, is inconsistent with the charter of the European Central Bank. Uh, the European Central Bank is not allowed to be the lender of last resort. It's not allowed to do the things that the Fed is allowed to do. So Mario Draghi, the president of the ECB, had to to, to go through the ringer effectively in order to be permitted to implement QE, quantitative easing. But in order to do that, he had to do something really very, very weird. <laughs> he had to promise to buy a lot more German debt than, Fran- uh, than Italian debt or Spanish debt. He had to buy debt, in other words, in proportion to the size of each member state's economy, which is absurd. German debt doesn't want for buyers. Exactly. So for every, uh, uh, let me put it this way, for every one euro of Italian debt that he buys, he has to buy two euros of German debt, which of course he, he shouldn't because Germany is not in the deflationary state in which Italy is. So in order to stabilize Italy, he has to crash the pension funds and the smaller banks in Germany. That, of course, creates a great deal of a backlash in Germany for the ECB actions, which are essential in order to keep Italy in the Eurozone. You only have to state this to realize the political coordination failure of uh, the Eurozone. And what about uh, the German banks? Are they uh, still holding up? Well, they're only holding up because they have the implicit guarantee of the German state. Uh, as you, we all know, um, Deutsche Bank uh, is deeply insolvent. The asset books of the Deutsche Bank are replete with um, non-performing uh, zero market price assets. The, the recent decisions in the United States of America regarding fines upon Deutsche Bank reduced its equity to the levels of a small a small company, even though it is the largest uh, bank in Europe. It has many times uh, the uh, size of the German economy buried in its asset books, in, in the form of liabilities, not assets. And um, uh, therefore, the only thing that keeps it going is the confidence of the marketplace that uh, the German taxpayer is behind Deutsche Bank. Does the German t- taxpayer have the uh, the means to uh, support Deutsche Bank? It sounds like, you know, there are a lot of people who think it's pretty wobbly. Just how serious is the problem and uh, how how serious is the proposed solution? Well, there's no proposed solution. Uh, I mean, the, the implicit guarantee from the German state. Oh, no, the, the, the German taxpayer is not capable of backing, of backstopping Deutsche Bank if Deutsche Bank were to be called to task by the, the regulators as we speak. What the German taxpayer can do is can, if he or she can guarantee the short-term refinancing of these bad, bad assets. Uh, as long as the regulators do not um, in, impose upon Deutsche Bank a proper audit, a proper cleansing of its books, the, the German taxpayer is capable of extending and pretending um, Deutsche Bank's uh, insolvency into the future by pretending that effectively you know, allowing it to, to, to carry on trading. So that is the situation we find ourselves in. Of course, this can, can, can go on for a very long time because uh, regulators uh, effectively control the, the, the game and they can allow Deutsche Bank to continue trading as it does for a very, very long time. But of course, you realize that this is a political bombshell buried in the foundations of Europe, because when this is happening with Deutsche Bank in Germany, at the very same time, um, similarly insolvent banks in Italy are being exposed as being insolvent, and the pressure is being placed on Rome, on the government of Rome, uh, to transfer their losses onto the shoulders of the weakest taxpayers. Uh, Therefore, you have a backlash, a populist backlash, a backlash against uh, the the European Union and the Eurozone. We have a situation, for instance, now in Italy where only one party is supporting, is continuing to support uh, Italy's membership of the Eurozone, and that party has just split. Yeah, I want to get to the politics in a bit, but a little more in the economics. Uh, Listening to this from the United States, (laughs) 
This approach to the banking problem sounds very much like the savings and loan crisis of the 1980s, though on a much, much larger scale. Uh, all that delay, the pretend and extend strategy, didn't really work and then ended up requiring a very large uh, federal bailout. Is anybody looking at precedents for this? Is, uh, are, are they just like trying to get through one day to the next? Well, you're absolutely right. This is the savings and loan scandal uh, at, at a larger scale and with a very great difference between the United States and Europe. Well, firstly, the first difference is that uh, the United States had a federal government uh, by which to effect a federal bailout. And uh, much more importantly, you have a Federal Reserve Bank which has the capacity, uh, it's within its remit, uh, to effectively transfer all the bad losses onto its balance sheet. Now, the European Central Bank was created so as not to be allowed to do this. And the reason why it was created in that way was because the Bundesbank, the German central bank, the, the condition that they, they imposed upon uh, European politicians to allow the Deutschmark to be extended to the rest of Europe, effectively to become the euro, was exact, exactly that, that the new central bank, a Buddhist bank uh, writ large, would not be allowed to be used as a dumping ground for the bad debts and the bad assets of the riffraff of Italian banks, Greek banks, Italian government, Greek government, so on and so forth. Now, it, so, it turns out that this was, this, was, this was a problem for them because now the, the central bank that they created cannot come to the rescue of Deutsche Bank. And at the same time, as I said, we don't have a federal government to do that, which happened in the United States uh, after the saving and loan scandal. Uh, so... The answer to your question is the last thing you said, uh, extend and pretend. Just make it up as they're going along and, uh, you know, living day by day, hand to mouth. I'm speaking with the Greek economist Yanis Varoufakis. Several times over the years we've discussed uh, uh, who materially benefited from this arrangement. And even in the early days of the crisis, it seemed like German banks were benefiting to some degree from, from, from the crisis. Is there anyone at this point, gaining materially from this arrangement? What's keeping it going? Uh, ideology? Uh, just inertia? What do you, how do you explain it? Ideology plays a part, but it's, it's, it's mainly vested, vested interests. Um, the, the, the moment, look, the, the moment the, the bubble burst in 2008, 2009, 2010, uh, it was a case of ensuring, from the establishment's point of view, that the cost of the crisis would be pushed onto the shoulders of the weakest uh, of Europeans. That's what the Greek bailout was. That's what the Irish bailout was, the Portuguese bailout, the Spanish bailout. And, of course, the austerity policies that came along. Uh, so th this is pure naked self-interest on the behalf of uh, the, the, you know, the powers that be. Now, of course, because they hadn't thought it through, or because they were so panicking when they um, resorted to that uh, massive cynical redistribution, uh, they didn't realize that, uh, that, or they didn't give themselves a chance to, to, to envision what would happen, which is that this austerity drive and the toxic bailouts uh, effectively yielded a deflationary environment. And that deflationary environment had other uh, effects that were not intended by them, and then they try to deal with those effects. And, you know, just like silly firefighters not aiming their water cannons uh, at, at the heart of the fire, but instead of aiming it at the flames, um, the crisis simply transformed itself into something different. And every time, this is what I was saying at the beginning, they were never attacking the systemic part of it. Uh, so there is a combination of um, vested interest, panic, lack of a systematic and coordinated approach to the problem, and in the end, incredible callousness in the way that uh, they wanted to, to win the, the blame game by blaming the victims of the crisis for its cause. During your brief tenure as finance minister of Greece, you uh, got to sit in on meetings and talk with people of the sorts that uh, professors of economics don't normally rub shoulders with. What did that experience teach you about uh, thinking at the highest levels of, uh, of the financial establishment? Many, many, many things. It was an amazing experience, I have to tell you that. that. But uh, allow me just, uh, for, for the benefits of brevity, point out two lessons. Uh, the first one has something to do with uh, that which Hannah Arendt once told 
told us about the banality of evil. How banal these people can be, especially the technocrats, especially the second-rate uh, cheerleaders amongst uh, the you know the Eurogroup and the, the finance ministerial meetings, cheerleaders of the, the great power, the great and powerful figures like Wolfgang Schäuble. The second thing is that these the the, the more powerful people uh, are quite smart; they know what's going on. For them, the the game is uh, resembles a, very much uh, a 19th century gunboat diplomacy game. There is very little room for having any sensible economic arguments in there. I often said that uh, I refer to, to what I, <laughs> what I define as the Swedish national anthem experience of trying to put to them um, what you, what you consider to be a reasonable economic argument, a sophisticated economic argument as to what should happen in the belief that it would be mutually advantageous for everyone to do this. And uh, looking at their faces and, and thinking, my goodness, whether I said what I just said or sung the Swedish national anthem, it's exactly the same thing, the same blank expression. But allow me to just finish off this, this, this part of the answer with um, a reminiscence of a discussion I had with Christine Lagarde, which was um, particularly insightful for me. Uh, it was at our first meeting after a, a long, long discussion on the conundrum that is the Greek crisis. After I had explained to her what I think should be done, what the problem was, what the mistakes that had been carried out. And I have to say that she was very um, uh, accepting of the basic argument and uh, open to my line of, of reasoning. Uh, at the very end, when it was just the two of us, she said to me, look, Yanis, look, of course you are right. This program cannot work. And she was referring to the fiscal consolidation and reform program that the IMF and the rest of the creditors were pushing, pushing on us. And this is a very important statement, Doug, because she didn't say it's difficult for it to work. She said it can't work. And, and then she hastened to add, but you, look, you've got to understand we've put so much political capital into this program that we cannot go back. And your credibility, that's my credibility, depends on you accepting it. Now, I think that tells the whole story, doesn't it? <laughs> it's really remarkable. The role of the IMF in all this, I mean, there's conflicting reports uh, that uh, it's been somewhat more sensible and more humane than, say, Frankfurt or, uh, or Brussels, uh, and then others who say not. Uh, what's your evaluation of the fund's role in all this? Well, the IMF knows its arithmetic better than the Europeans do. There's no doubt about that. Uh, at, at least the staff at the IMF are reasonably good. They've made huge mistakes in the past in prognosticating the impact of their austerity, but at least now they've learned their lesson. So they are right that, um, this is what I was saying too, that Greece needs, absolutely needs, debt relief and uh, um, fiscal targets that are manageable, unlike the ones that Berlin and uh, Frankfurt and Brussels are demanding. But at the same time, the IMF is callous in its determination to target cuts on the poor. Uh, they have a Tacitus kind of uh, approach. Uh, they believe that uh, we should liquidate millions of small businesses and uh, uh, you know people who can pay their mortgages and so on. Uh, just just get, get it done, just discard them. And of course this means that Greece is going to be turned into kind of a desert. And then of course you've got to cut down the debt because the desert cannot repay a debt. So in that sense, the IMF gets its maths right on the basis of an antisocial, uh, hyper-austerity uh, reform package. In, in, in contrast, uh, Germany, for instance, is happy to go a little softer on the poor as long as debt relief is off the table because Mrs. Merkel simply does not want to go to the federal parliament and admit that when she was promising them that the Greek debt will be repaid in full and with interest, she was fibbing. So just to conclude this, in my estimation, that Greek society now is uh, the collateral damage in a war of attrition between a reasonably numerate villain, that's the IMF, and a chronic procrastinator that simply does not want to discuss debt, and that's Germany. It does seem like the spirit of Andrew Mellon, liquidate, 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 lives on. That, that is the, the, absolutely the case for the IMF. 
it it was it's quite fascinating to see that spirit of Melon um, in practice. You know, for me, having spent like you have uh, many many years reading about all this, now there I was actually witnessing it in neon lit seminar rooms with the IMF and the, the other representatives of, of the creditors. Let me give you an example. They were very keen on what they call guaranteed minimum income. That's not universal basic income. Guaranteed, you know, a basic uh, benefit for the poor. While at the same time, they were keen to remove all the, um, the protections for labor and for small business, business that keeps them employed. So that's exactly the liquidate, liquidate, liquidate mindset. And then give them 300 euros so that they can buy some bread from the shops. The neoliberal era, which I guess lives on in zombie form, but essentially died with the crisis of 2008, for all its faults, had a certain internal coherence to it. Now, since 2008, we've been living in this world with no internal coherence at all. We have nothing that resembles something you'd call a regime of accumulation or anything like that. It was all revealed as an unstable fraud, in fact, and yet really nothing coherent has taken its place. Uh, how do you read the politics at this moment? We're just sort of walking zombies? Well, uh, firstly, allow me to, to agree entirely with you. <laughs> the astonishing thing is there's, there's, these people are not even neoliberal anymore. So there was I, the finance minister of a government, uh, of a party whose name was the Coalition of the radical left. And what was I asking for? I was asking for um, for debt swaps of the kind of, 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 of you know, effectively financial engineering that Wall Street does all, every day. Well, it's pretty much like what the U.S. did with the Brady Plan and Latin American debt, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I was, it was even more, less radical than that, what I was proposing. A, a small surplus in the budget, so there was no deficit spending in my planning. Instead of having a huge surplus, in other words, huge austerity to have a smaller one. That was the extent of the radicality of what I was proposing. Uh, a bad bank to, 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 to deal with non-performing loans. That's standard practice in, in neoliberal circles. A development bank to create a kind of, to, to use public assets as collateral for borrowing in order to, to have some investment in this place that we call Greece. Some reforms in order to reduce monopoly power in, in the supermarket sector, that, that kind of thing, right? And, and, and I must say, reductions in tax rates. I wanted to reduce corporate tax rates. I wanted to reduce VAT. I wanted to reduce income tax rates. Why? Because we are, have a broken economy with high tax rates and people either incapable of or unwilling to pay them. So, in a sense, I was putting forward the Laffer curve Reaganite argument. It took a, a, a hard left finance minister to propose uh, Reaganite policies. This is the extent of the crisis. And there were the creditors on the other side, the IMF and the European Central Bank, saying, no, you've got to increase tax rates. So, this is simply confirming what you say that we don't live even in a neoliberal era anymore. Uh, the neoliberal era created financialization, which then broke down, uh, imploded and ended up with huge legacy losses, which were then transferred onto the shoulders of the, of the weakest people. And now they are, what we have is, is, is a kind of punitive neoliberalism, which is not even economic neoliberalism, punitive in the sense of placing above all else uh, the maintenance of, of that institutional power, against anyone who has different ideas to them, anybody who has opposed them in the past. It was clear to me that, that uh, their worst nightmare was any agreement with me that would be mutual advantageous. I had often the, the, this crushing feeling that I was negotiating with creditors that didn't want their money back. You know, this is not an easy negotiation. <laughs> but they wanted to make the political point of grinding Greece's nose in the dirt? Was that the idea? Absolutely. For them, what mattered was to signal to the people of Spain that if they dare elect riffraff like us, they would, uh, they would be crushed. So any agreement with us, with me in particular, uh, would have been the wrong signal to the people of Spain, to the wrong people of Portugal, to the people... Not, not the wrong signal in the sense, oh, Barufak has got a lot of money from us. No. That there was any agreement at all with somebody like us with a party that, that, that had 
run a, a campaign and receive the mandate, a democratic mandate, to oppose the view of the creditors and to put forward a different set of suggestions. Effectively, it's a, look, it's exactly like uh, the 1920s and 30s. Uh, there was a irrational exuberance based on uh, a faulty monetary design. Then there was that created financialization. Financialization broke down in Wall Street in 1929 and 2008. And after that, you had a clueless establishment trying to impose its authority, firstly by pushing all the costs, the legacy costs of the crisis onto the weak, and then doing anything in its power to retain power, however idiotic, politically and economically. That was the first part of my interview with Yanis Varoufakis, the economist and former finance minister of Greece. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. That was a bit from Brian Eno's latest album, Reflection. I'm playing it not just because I love Eno's music, but also because he's on the board of DM25. I asked Giannis about Eno and his politics, and here's his response. He's a good comrade, loyal, progressive, a great defender of the working classes, a brave campaigner for the Palestinian cause, and all-around great guy. Nice. And here's the second part of my interview with Giannis Varoufakis. Well, now we're seeing uh, something in the form of a political rebellion against this stuff, but it's taking right-wing nationalist form. So uh, what are your thoughts on Brexit to start with? Well, firstly, let me just say that we've seen this all before, the 1930s. This isn't exact, exactly what happened after the, the, uh, the, the, the inane handling of that crisis and uh, the combination of failed policies by the Hoover administration, by the Europeans, and so on and so forth. In 1930-31, the Nazis rose to, to, to government as a result of the austerity that Bruning, Herr Bruning, imposed in, 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 in very, very similar circumstances. So, Brexit, uh, the five-star movement in, in Italy, Le Pen in France, the alternative for Deutschland in Germany, uh, Trump in the United States, uh, these are all manifestations of their own kind of passion returning to, to politics during a period of deflation and the period of lost hope. Looking at Brexit, it's hard to point out just what the EU did to Britain uh, that did it any harm. Most of Britain's uh, economic policies uh, were homegrown. Uh, they imposed Thatcher and Cameron on themselves. It didn't come out of Brussels. Why does it take this form against the EU, do you suppose? It's got nothing to do with the EU. I campaigned across Britain in England, South England, East England, West England, North England, in Scotland, and in Wales. And I campaigned against Brexit, which surprised some people, given the way that the European Union treated me and my government. <laughs> but nevertheless, I had my reasons, as I'm sure you can imagine. Uh, but the reason why I'm mentioning those campaign speeches, I gave about 12 or 13 of them, is because I, uh, you know, I want to convey to our listeners the spirit of the audience. It was a very sympathetic audience, that's why they came to listen to me. But nevertheless, they wouldn't. They, they were very reluctant to to agree with me on the anti-Brexit position, and it was clear that it had nothing to do with the EU. It was a rebellion against the establishment. They saw people like David Cameron, the Bank of England, the Treasury, the the whole of the City of London, all the bankers, the OECD, the IMF, the World Bank. President Obama, Wolfgang Schäuble, Angela Merkel, President Francois Hollande, descending upon them and pointing the finger at them and saying, if you dare vote in favor of Brexit, uh, Armageddon is going to hit you. And they thought, right, 
These are all these people together, the establishment, who have been treating us like discarded souls and discarded communities for decades, beginning in London and going all the way to Paris, Berlin and Washington. Uh, what is it that we can do to piss them off? And the answer is vote for Brexit. And what do you think the results of the exit will be? People say it's going to be economic disaster. Uh, uh, Nigel Farage, of course, wouldn't agree. What, what do you expect the, uh, the fallout from Brexit will be? What concerns me is not the primary effects, but the secondary effects of Brexit. This is what I was saying to, to, to my audiences before Brexit. I was discarding all the, the prognosis of uh, doom and gloom that were coming from the, the, the British Treasury and from the Bank of England and so on. This, there, there was a lot of scare among them. And I was telling them, look, not, if you vote for Brexit, nothing is going to change much in the next six months, 12 months, 18 months. There will be maybe a little bit of more inflation, which is not necessarily a bad thing. If you are in a deflationary trap, uh, there will be a little bit more, more of this, a bit more of that. But you're not going to, to suffer from the primary effects of Brexit. But you will suffer from the secondary effects of Brexit. Because Brexit is going to speed up the disintegration of the EU and the Eurozone, as it is already doing. Just look at Italy. And this disintegration is going to unleash huge deflationary forces from within the continent that are going to sweep across the, the British Channel and they're going to hit you and they're going to bite you when you don't expect it. And by simply voting to get out of the EU, you're not going to be shielded from those forces. And now what about Lexit? Uh, there are people on the left who uh, thought that uh, Brexit would open up possibilities for the left. Uh, certainly some people around Corbyn. Corbyn himself was kind of ambiguous about this, although he is publicly for uh, remaining. He uh, didn't seem to have his heart fully in it. But what do you, what do you think of the Lexit position? I disagree profoundly with it. Um, I, I respect and uh, harbor much affection for my comrades who endorse Lexit. Uh, I had, um, for instance, before the referendum, I had a public debate, a very large debate, a very large audience, with Tariq Ali, who is uh, a leading lexiteer, let's say. And um, I remember, and it's been on YouTube, you can check this out for yourselves, his most potent argument was that uh, Brexit would uh, split the Tories. And my, my counter-argument was the Tories never split because the Tories know about class conflict and their dedication to the class war in favor of the bourgeoisie is uh, beyond that. It's the left that gets that will be split up. It's labor, the, la the Labour Party that's going to be split up by Brexit, as it happened. Now, more generally speaking, Dark look. My, my comrades tell me, who do believe in Lexit, that, Yanis, um, how can you possibly be against the dissolution of the EU? The EU is a neoliberal construct. It's got nothing to do with genuine solidarity. It's all about solidarity between heavy industry and capital, and which is, of course, all absolutely true. But uh, my concern, Doug, and this is why I'm against Lexit, is that this awful neoliberal construction of the EU if it now disintegrates, if we all pick up our stumps and leave, what will happen is um, developments at the economic level that will only benefit the extreme right. The deflationary force that will be unleashed from the collapse of the euro and the EU will only benefit uh, Le Pen, the IFD in Germany, and so on and so forth. It will not benefit the left, just like Brexit did not benefit the left. Uh, therefore, from a consequentialist point of view, um, I, I believe that Lexit is profoundly wrong. And also, allow me to say another thing. As, as leftists, we, I'm not only speaking about myself, I'm speaking about you, I'm speaking about many, many people, uh, many who are in our audience today. As leftists, we have always demonstrated and protested our government when our government was, was wrong, which is most of the time. That does not mean that with the exception of a few anarchists in our midst, that we were against having a government, that we wanted to disintegrate uh, the United States of America, or Greece, in my case. Similarly, as a Europeanist, uh, it is my duty to protest and to disobey the edicts of Brussels, Frankfurt, and so on and so forth, 
But at the same time, I do not see why I should be proposing the disintegration of the European Union, even though I am extremely critical of its uh, uh, spirit and, and, and architecture. There's been some hatred coming from the left towards Brexit voters, towards Trump voters, mostly left neoliberals, but even people further to the left of, of them, seeing uh, that the, the, the thrust behind uh, Brexit, Trump, uh, you know, other continental movements, uh, racist, backward, xenophobic. Um, is this the right way to think about it? I mean, certainly there are these things around these constituencies, but uh, is it really the whole story, or are we doing ourselves a disfavor by pushing that line? Of course we're doing ourselves a major disfavor, major disfavor. We, we are politically and morally um, bankrupt if we uh, set our sights against the... Those people who decided to, to, to try to punish the establishment by voting for Trump and voting for Brexit and voting for Le Pen. Our obligation, our duty, is to talk to them, to find out what is it that keeps them up at night and to have a discussion with them, which uh, re uh, results in a, a reconfiguration of their own thinking about the causes that keep them up at night. So, for instance, let me give you an, an example, right? Just a very practical, concrete example. I was in Doncaster, a northern English city, during the, the Brexit campaign. And there was this lovely lady that, who approached me and, and said, look, I, I, I like you very much. I like what you, you've done in Europe and so on and so forth. But I can't take your recommendation that I should vote against Brexit. Let me tell you why, she said. I'm not racist. Next door to me, in the, the flat adjacent, the apartment adjacent to mine, there are these four Romanian boys. They're lovely boys. They share a flat. They pay their rent. They do all sorts of jobs. They struggle. They're lovely. And they spend, they, they, they save as much money as they can to, save, to send it back to their home to keep their parents alive in Romania. But do you realize, she said, that, you know, by working together like this and living together just, you know, in the same sharing a flat, they can afford to outbid Doncaster local families that cannot afford the same amount of rent as they can since they are four boys working. Uh, and I said to her, but let me ask you this. This building of yours, uh, is it publicly owned or is it privately owned? She said, well, it, it used to be a council estate, a publicly owned housing estate, and then it was privatized and now we have a a private landlord. I said, so you see what the problem is? The problem is not the Romanian boys. The problem is that your public housing was privatized. And then the, uh, the privateer decided to, 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 to utilize this new property right in order to maximize his rents. So the problem is not the Romanian boys. The problem is the, the, the destruction of the council housing program, program by the Tories. Uh, now, do you really want to vote for Brexit and therefore to enable a Tory government from uh, destroying whatever labor right protection there is from the EU? So that is the way to do it. The way to do it is not to treat her as a racist bigot. The right way to do it is to engage in what really keeps these people up at night. If we can't do it, we are, fa we are huge failures. I'm speaking with the Greek economist Yanis Varoufakis. Now, you're devoting a lot of your time to uh, something like a progressive reinvention of the European Union. I'm trying to think about how that could happen. Uh, nation states were formed on the basis of a common language, a common state, psychologically through fantasies of you know, solidarity and the nation's singularity in the world. The EU is a long way from that. You know, I've always been struck uh, by, the, by the Euro notes, the generic nature of the monuments that are on the bills. Uh, they're, uh, you know, there's no real common history in the sense that uh, all the people who use the euro uh, can be appealed to. Uh, back when uh, the, e, uh, the euro was being created, Timothy Garden Ash uh, said uh, the continent was embarking on a hair-raising adventure of political union through money. That really hasn't worked out. Um, but what could? What kind of, would it be a cross-national uh, solidarity appeal? Uh, is there some European identity that such a thing could build on? The answer to your question, from my perspective, comes in one word, movement. I'm, I'm dedicating all my, um, all my life, all my energies and all my activities presently, Doug, on what we call DiEM25, the Democracy in Europe movement. 
after my resignation from government, uh, uh, I couldn't bring myself to creating a political party just in, in Greece, given that the problem is pan-European. And um, some of us got together in Berlin and created DIEM, the Democracy in Europe movement. And that, that was about a year ago. Now we have tens of thousands of members everywhere, uh, especially in Germany, in Greece, in Portugal, in Belfast, in, in all sorts of different disparate places. And the answer to your question comes from uh, the energy and solidarity and common purpose that I see everywhere I go, whether it's Poland, Portugal, or anywhere else. The movement by which to approach the basic problems that we have at the pan-European level, in exactly the same way that the Green Movement is approaching climate change. Uh, climate change cannot be sorted out by Luxembourg, by Greece, by even the United States on their own. It's something that either we do together or we are defeated by it together. But the same thing applies to the big problems we have in Europe, like public debt, like very low investment, like poverty, like the refugee crisis. Either we're going to deal with these at the pan-European level or we're going to be defeated by them. And we need to Europeanize the solutions to these in order to maximize sovereignty at the level of municipality, of regional governments and, of course, national governments. So this is what we're working for uh, with DiEM. And... We hope to, to make this, this movement capable of uh, confronting simultaneously, and this is important, both the establishment of Europe and the insurgency from the nationalist international, as we call them, because these are accomplices. The establishment and the nationalists feed off each other, and we need a movement to oppose them uh, throughout the European continent. And that is what is going to create the glue and the cement uh, that goes hand in hand with the generation of a European identity that is necessary not for us to overcome our Greek identities, Italian identities, but to effectively shore them up and give more sovereignty to our peoples in their own home. Now, what would this Europe look like? Uh, freedom of capital to move, freedom of people to move. What would the governance structures look like? Well, let's separate the principle from from the structure. The principle should be to end uh, involuntary underemployment and involuntary migration. At the moment, what is destroying Europe is these two things, these two phenomena. Involuntary underemployment due to lo very, very low investment and to the concentration of investment in very, very small areas around London, around uh, certain parts of Germany, um, Holland, and so on and so forth. And involuntary uh, migration, which is the result of the fact that millions of Europeans simply cannot survive within their communities. They have to move. They don't go to London or to Berlin because of the weather or because of the food. They go because they have no alternative. So how do we deal with this? Well, we need... This is what we've been working on, Doug, now for the last year. This is DiEM25. We are putting together what we call the European New Deal document, our policy, uh, we're presenting it on the 25th of March. Let me plug this event in, in Rome. It's the 60th anniversary of the European Union, of the Treaty of Rome. And we are going there not in order to, to celebrate inanely, like all the other leaders, but in order to do some work and to present our view on what economic policies will do the trick. Uh, these, are, these, these are policies that can be applied tomorrow without federation, without any change, fundamental change in institutions, just redeploying existing institutions in a sensible and progressive way, so that once we stabilize Europe, we can then have the discussion around the question that you asked. What, what will the architecture of Europe look like in the future? This should be an open-ended debate. My view is that you know, I, I don't believe in borders. I would like to see a federal structure, which is democratic, fundamentally democratic in a way that the United States is not, in a way that definitely Europe is not at the moment. Uh, but then again, if uh, a different view prevails that we need to have some subsidiarity, we need to go back to loosely associated nation states, uh, as long as our common problems are Europeanized, that we are open to that discussion too. But what is of the utmost importance is to arrest this inexorable slide into a postmodern 1930s today. And how much of this can be accomplished without fundamentally altering the structures of capitalism? Uh, well, it can't, 
But what we can do, and this is this is something that, of course, in the United States you are perfectly familiar with, uh, when you are in a Great Depression, when you are in a, a profound uh, discontinuity like the United States was in 1932, a new deal can stabilize it. A new deal can, which effectively, that what it does, it, it, it channels idle wealth into productive investments uh, with uh, uh, caps on the power of the financiers and with uh, a reinforcement of the weakest. That's what I, that's how I understand the New Deal. A New Deal can stabilize capitalism sufficiently so that we can have a conversation on post-capitalism. If we don't stabilize capitalism, it is a gross error, and this is something that you know I've been in, I am in disagreement with many left-wing comrades of mine, that you know, I don't believe that the free fall of capitalism is conducive to progressive change. Well, I think the history of the last several years have uh, been pretty conclusive on that one. <laughs> I think so, too. Uh, but I also I saw in conclusion, uh, I, I saw an interview with uh, you where you um, said we had uh, the means to uh, for all of us to live rich, civilized lives without destroying the earth. Uh, so you're not uh, a techno-pessimist who thinks we'll have to shrink the population and go back to being hunter-gatherers. Oh, of course not. God forbid. <laughs> of course not. We, do, we, we didn't come that far in order to, to, to return to the idiocy of rural life, as Mark said. We have the technology, and very soon we will be able to, to take it a bit further to stop us from, doing, from either being in need of things that we can have or from uh, interminable chores. Of course, this technology, how we use it, is a political question. And I, I, as I like to say, uh, in science fiction terms, we, there, you know, we're at the juncture. There are two possible directions we can, uh, we, we can take. One is something like Star Trek, which is the absolute communism. You have a hole in the world that produces everything and nobody needs to work. There's no money and people can sit around the table and discuss the meaning of life and explore the universe. Or alternatively, the Matrix, where we are all uh, uh, slaves of the machines that we created. The choice is ours, and we better make this democratically. That was the conclusion of my interview with Yanis Varoufakis, the economist and former Greek finance minister. During the interview, Yanis mentioned a debate he had with Tarek Ali about Brexit and the future of Europe. Uh, here's a four-minute excerpt from that debate, which was uh, held last April under the auspices of the Guardian newspaper. First Tarek Ali, and then Yanis Varoufakis. The European Union today, as it functions, is effectively a machine for neoliberal capitalism economically and its politics flows from that and for me it is impossible to vote for an institution which has punished the people of Greece in the most grotesque way possible in front of the eyes of the rest of Europe and the world not because it didn't have the money to sort out the Greek problems, they did. It was a piffling amount, but because they wanted to politically punish Greek politicians and Greek people. They've done similar things in Ireland with the support of the elite, similar things in Portugal. We talk about refugees. How many people talk about up to a million people, young people who've been forced, and old people who've been forced to leave Portugal because of the austerity measures, or the fact that one in four young people in Ireland are emigrating again. They're refugees too. So for me, the best way to fight to create a new Europe is to force some recognition in Brussels that it's a very serious situation. And I think Britain withdrawing will be helpful from that point of view to restart and reopen a new discussion. That's, it's as simple as that. For me, it's a tactical issue which way to vote. It's not to paint Europe in sort of golden colors. It's the new gold standard. No, no, no one is saying that. It's a tactical issue, and I think the tactics at the present time are to punish the EU bureaucracy, to force them to think, and that will happen if there is a Brexit, regardless of all the forces engaged on either side, many of whom are you know, people I could never support, either Cameron or Farage and Boris Johnson and people like that. What you've been saying, of course, is the kind of debate that I've had in Greece many times with friends and comrades who were discussing along the same lines that you are proposing Brexit, Grexit. 
So they were saying to me that, you know, see how they're treating us. There is absolutely no sense in trying to reform the European Union by staying in when there is absolutely no room for a rational conversation. But I will take you up on the challenge of talking about tactics. Because my great disagreement with uh, those comrades of mine who were recommending Grexit was that from the perspective of the the European Union institutions, the bureaucrats, the neoliberal politicians that are in cahoots with these bureaucrats, the worst thing that we could have done against them, their greatest fear, was not that we would up stamps and leave, but that we would default within The great weapon that we had in my ministry, that I had as a finance minister, was not the threat of getting out of the Eurozone, for instance. The greatest threat is, I'm not going anywhere, but you know what? If you close down my banks, I'm going immediately to haircut the bonds of the Greek state that you own, my debt to you. And that to them was a much greater threat than the non-credible or the very difficult political threat of arguing that we should leave. I don't, I'm not proposing that we should stay, that the Greeks should stay or the Brits should stay in the European Union to reform it. This beast cannot be reformed on the basis of rational argument. Mm. But mm. they are not impervious to civil and state disobedience within the European Union. So my suggestion is, elect the Labour Party government, anti-establishment governments throughout Europe, and then have those governments do what we try to do, what I try to do, which is to a campaign of state disobedience within Brussels, within the institutions, saying we are not going, we're going to veto the hell out of every European Union Council, every ECOFIN, every uh, Eurogroup, until we have the debate that Europe has not had. That was a brief excerpt from a debate that was held last April under the auspices of the Guardian newspaper, featuring Giannis Varoufakis and Tarek Ali. You can find it on Giannis's website, GiannisVarofakis.eu. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with some more Brian Eno, this Blank Frank, from his first album, 1973. Till next week, bye. Blank Frank is the messenger of your doom and-